Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to this episode. I'm your host, Zylan Fanek. Today is a special episode. With me, as always, is my co-host, David Lipman, the Director of Applied Science and Content at Super Sapiens. David is a doctor, an exercise physiologist, and an ultra-marathon runner. David's career has been spent coaching endurance athletes and team sports athletes on their journey to higher performance. Welcome to this episode. Well, we thought it's best to have a standalone episode to recount the days and the amazing events that we have recently been through. David, for you that is being the Berlin Marathon, we're gonna dig into that today. Uh, For me that is completing the Ironman World Championships in Kona and do a standalone deeper segment for it. But we can't just be here talking about ourselves. We had to invite a very special guest to take care of the questions. Bobby Julik. Bobby is a former world-class professional cyclist who is a podium finisher at the Tour de France and an Olympic medalist. He won the silver medal in the 2004 Olympic individual time trial. Since retiring, he's held coaching positions at some of the best cycling teams in the world like Team Saxobank, Team Sky, Team BMC and Tinkoff. Bobby is part of the Super Sapiens team in his role as program manager for athletes and coaches. Bobby and David, I am super pumped and excited about this episode. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Bobby. Appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I know you guys have had some amazing exploits that I've gotten to witness, and now we get to share them with our listeners. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of today's uh, episode, we're going to do a deep dive into fueling for Berlin, what that looked like, uh, the Kone experience. Um, But David, quickly... You just you did Berlin Marathon. What have you been doing after that? Are you the kind of runner that takes two, three weeks, a month off? When do you get back into it after completing a marathon? So I think we, we mentioned this a little bit on another podcast that I was going to have time, some time off, and, and I was thinking about it. But the reality is, uh, I got per, for me, I had some time off. I had three, four days where I didn't do much, um, sort of walked around, and that was it. Usually, I'm back in the gym on Monday after a Sunday marathon and start running that week. Uh, I think I had two, three days where I did nothing and then started running again. But that's for two weeks post-marathon, I do very little intensity and not much duration. Uh, I mean, I still run 10 miles, maybe maybe even 13 miles, sort of 20 kilometers or, or 16 kilometers, but not anywhere near as much as I was doing. And the total volume's lower as well. But back into it, back into the gym, started some intensity last week, so I'm a month post now so after two weeks of nothing i started back some intensity uh which was great it's been feeling really good i've been enjoying it uh got my as we mentioned the other episode i got my london marathon good for age uh green lights and now i and i recently this afternoon had a user tweet me one of our listeners tweet me with some uh short races a place to search for some short races in the uk so thank you very much uh, his username is We Run Ultras on uh, on Twitter, so really appreciate that. I am going to look into some of those. I'm going to try and get a 10k, 5k, maybe a half marathon in, and then start my marathon build. So uh, pretty keen to try and rewrite some PBs. As a um, non-finisher of a marathon, I've always wondered, you know, the the amount of soreness, I guess, in the last couple of days, because there was a, a few people that I saw that couldn't walk up and down stairs. Um, 
did you have any sort of, you know, onset of DOMS or any issues that you were just kind of hobbling around for a couple of days or did the training that you did up to it kind of allow you to be a little bit more agile after that, that long event? Yeah, I can't decide why, but I actually pulled up really, really well. Um, I have been pulling up quite well, even from Boston, which is like quite hilly. So you would anticipate more soreness because of the downhill running. Uh, I generally pull up okay. And some of that's to do with my preparation. Uh, maybe it's all my extra gym work. I specifically did a bit of hill stuff, including downhills for Boston. So some of it's about prep. I also, my training style uh, and, and periodization tactics, I use a lot of um, what they call extended thresholds, sometimes called Canova style training, popularized by Renato Canova, the Italian based in Kenya marathon coach is one of the better marathon coaches in the world, which is effectively tons of work with like really long threshold stuff, Bobby, to speak in cycling language. So I would do, you know, in the, my longest block before a marathon, I do three or longest training session, I do three 10K blocks at marathon pace or effort or heart rate with a one kilometer float. So a little bit, it's sort of four minutes of a little bit slower running. So it's effectively 20 miles of almost marathon. And so by the time you get to marathon, it's not that big a change. Uh, I think the new shoes help, the sort of super shoes help soreness a lot. And you hear this from a lot of athletes in Ironman as well. Uh, and then maybe it's experience as well as you get more marathons in the legs. Like my first marathon, I was a mess afterwards. Um, you know, and as I've progressed through my marathon career, uh, then it's a little bit easier. And then the other probably factor in that is my, you know, I run ultra marathons as well. So this is a lot harder intensity wise, but in terms of the muscular aspects of it, it's not quite as intense as running down 3000 meters of elevation descent. I did in, you know, Mont Blanc in June. So, um, yeah, I think all of those factors play into it. So I wasn't particularly sore, uh, at all. And Bobby, uh, you've just completed your old mate, George Hinkapi's uh, Grand Fonda, Hinkapi Grand Fonda. How was that? Well, definitely not as hard or as intense as uh, running a marathon, but it's kind of a accumulation because we, we have a, a VIP camp that starts on the Tuesday before the event, which is actually um, was last Saturday, uh, October the 22nd. So it's, it's a lot of back and forth. We go out there, we have dinner with the clients. Um, we ride with the clients in the morning, stay around for lunch, get back to the house, get a little bit of work done, uh, change, shower, and head back out there for dinner. So it is a action-packed week. And um, this year, they had the junior event. So the junior, junior men started in front of us. And it was $10,000 on the line. So these kids were ready to go out the gate. <laughs> and just recently, like three days before the, um, the camp started, we were riding around in shorts with no undershirt. And then suddenly the temperature dropped about 20 to 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Oof. And it was chilly yeah. in the morning. I mean, I started with long gloves, arm warmers, uh, like a little vest, uh, a little um, headband under my helmet. And as soon as we got through the um, neutralized section, it was fast. It was really fast. And, uh, you know, it was great trying to stay in the front group with those juniors, kind of like, you know, staying out of their way, not really influencing the race itself, but seeing how hard these guys rode. And we kind of turn off this main highway and then it gets a little lumpy for a while. We do this real kind of like almost like MotoGP lap around this tiny lake. And then we come into this town called Tryon. And that's where the two 
um, Medio Grand Fondo and the Grand Fondo separate. And so all the juniors turned left and it was like, okay, you know, good luck. And we turned right. And there was probably four or five guys that were doing the Grand Fondo that were in our group. And we all just kind of looked at each other. And especially I said to George, like, okay, now we can go a little bit easier. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it was, it was a full gas start. Um, I had live visibility on my Wahoo and George did as well. And we were both above 200 milligrams per deciliter that, that whole first hour. And I knew that now that the intensity came down and then we have another climb, I was um, coaching George on how to avoid, you know, like a mega crash after a major high like that. Um, so yeah, the rest of the ride, we just kind of rode uh, within ourselves. We would stop at every rest stop. We would, you know, thank the volunteers that were manning those rest stops. We'd wait for a couple of our buddies, get a good group together again. And we just kind of, you know, hop, skipped and jumped um, to, to the finish. And luckily, um, I was able to to finish with with no problems. Um, ironically, six years ago was my first Hincapie Grand Fondo, and I had just moved here to South Carolina. I had just moved back from Europe. We had done like a double house move. I was the most stressed, the least healthy, and the heaviest I had ever been. So when I finished, when I came to town, everyone wanted me to start riding with them, and I said, I'm not riding. 80 miles ever again. But little by little in our social network group that we have here, peer pressure was you got to get fit for the Fondo. You got to get fit for the Fondo. So slowly but surely due to that peer pressure, I started riding a little bit and I suffered. I mean, those climbs are tough. I didn't have, you know, I was probably 25 pounds heavier. I definitely didn't have my fueling protocols down like I do now. And, but something magical happened. There's, you get to the top of the last climb and then it's kind of like 15 miles falls flat downhill until you get to Hotel Domestique, which is the, the finish line. And it was a perfect day and I'm rolling down. The, the leaves are changing. The colors are amazing. And I finished and right after the finish line was standing Rich Hincapie, who's my oldest friend in cycling. I met him at the Olympic Training Center in 1986. And, you know, he kind of took me under his wing because I was one of the youngest guys at the camp and he was one of the older, you know, juniors there. And he was standing right after the finish line and I crossed the finish line. I put my bike uh, up on the barriers and I just gave him a hug. And I said, you know what? I think I want to start riding my bike again. So it was funny that, you know, six years later, I'm finishing with two fingers in my nose. I mean, it was... you know, it was four and a half hours of riding, but it was just so much more enjoyable. So those, those events are, are super special. And I, I had a great time. It's not all about the competition or the placing anymore. It's more about the pleasure and the participation for me. It's not about the competition, but the young guys can't get away. That's the most important thing. Yeah. And that's the influence of George, you know, (laughs) his son is racing and his son wound up getting third Enzo Hincapi. So, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of, you know, I guess I have to suck it up for an hour. Uh, but yeah, when you look down and you see that your, your glucose levels are, are 200, you're like, oh, this is going to be interesting how to, how to surf this wave once the intensity goes down. 
I love what you said there, uh, <clears throat> Bobby, about uh, events, you know, and the role that they play in our lives. Um, I mean, for me, we'll talk a little about it, but Kona for me was the first thing I had to overcome was the no wetsuit swim. I only learned to swim five years ago. Swimming is not my strength, and the wetsuit, no wetsuit swim has been freaking me out. But, you know, just like approaching that process head on, head first, you know, has actually forced me and and has a, a paid big dividends in my swimming ability. Like I've really had a breakthrough just because I didn't give up. And I was so terrified of the event that swimming is the one thing that I focused on. And in four or five years time, in four or five years, I, I can confidently say I have had the biggest breakthrough in my swimming. I've started swimming this week again and I feel like a completely different swimmer. And and my coach pointed that out to he was like, Oh my goodness, you've become a swimmer now. And I love that event do that for us you know that's what the Hinkapi Grand Fondo did for you years ago look at you now you're back to being healthy and in shape and I couldn't even dream of sitting on your wheel and not getting dropped by you now you you you, you know 15 years older than me you would still drop me in a heartbeat and yeah I love what that does and and I guess that's the premise of this uh, of this episode really to, to dissect two very special events David having completed the Berlin Marathon and me having completed Ironman Kona, the Ironman World Championship. So, should we get into no, it? You gotta tell we us. Get into no, you got to tell us about your training. While you're swimming, what have you been doing? I just did. I just I thought I just no, did no. in a very natural, no, you know, I saw your Strava. eloquent way. You've been killing it. What have you been doing? I've seen this Strava, mate. All of a sudden, you go from like, oh, I might go for a swim to like, oh, I've swum and I've biked and I've run and I'm bricking already. Like, what's the story? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, after Ironman, I took two weeks off. One of that was planned. Second week wasn't planned. I I got sick traveling back through multiple time zones. Uh, picked up a upper respiratory um, infection, so forced me off for another for another week. And then yeah, I started picking up training this week again. It, like, I'm in that zone where I'm not opening training peaks. I'm not you know doing what the coaches prescribe. I'm just doing what I feel like for another week, which is I think one of my favorite things about completing a big event. Just going out there and doing what you feel like. So yeah back on the bike swimming had my first run today feels good to be back at it that's good it's good to hear bobby you had a question uh you from some users or something yeah i i get this a lot from our super sapiens users when when you're mixing in exogenous carbohydrates good priming um you know adrenaline intensity um, and, and I think I was a perfect example there along with George, you know, we were so high for so long, which before, um, you know, we, we, we looked at data of quote unquote elite athletes. It was pretty much, um, misunderstood that a non-diabetic person could get their blood, uh, their, their glucose levels that high, um, I've spoken to it about uh, about it with with a lot of people a lot smarter than me because I don't have a PhD in glucose metabolism, and and quite a few of them said you know maybe that's that little um, glitch that you know makes elite athletes elite is that they're able to maintain those much higher levels than quote unquote normal, um, but you know, we have the glucose score in, in our app and there's a lot of people that are using that and looking at that and, and honestly coming away with a low score, even though that they felt like they fueled enough. So could you explain a little bit of that relationship between, you know, the exogenous carbohydrate intake, the intensity, 
the, the, the nerves. You know, we always say that food, mood, and movement are the main drivers of, of glucose. But, you know, in this situation, it's kind of hard to separate out which was driving it and why did I have that, that, that crash afterwards, even though I was uh, continuing with my, my fueling protocol. So I'd love to throw that question to you. What is the drivers of that glucose score and why are there drops after certain in intensities and maybe mood changes uh during during a long duration event yeah thank you that's a yeah it's a good question we get it a lot you're right um so there's a couple of things in there that i'll try and unpack uh, roughly in some sense of semblance of, of what makes sense so when you say mood we re that's really a catch-all we use for anything related to stress or mood or these sort of things some people think it's like mental health and it's not necessarily that connotation it's more to be honest it's more stress but it just rhymes better with food um so stress will definitely drive it up and you'll see this in some of my data you'll see like i'm above 140 walking to the start line of say rotterdam marathon um and that's because there was a lot of hype around i was a bit stressed getting there so you can see this right and that's a very normal response to have stress lift that up if you think about it evolutionarily you know if a tiger comes you have some stress, you want the glucose to get away, right? So, and, and even for the marathon, it helps me to perform. I have some glucose circulating around the system before I need to start running. Uh, so that's helpful. So that's kind of what drives that. And, and you're right, you will probably see for most people who use the system, they'll see probably higher glucose on race day because of the stress and because of the aspects of, of racing. So that's the first thing. Uh, in terms of how that interacts and, and the glucose score, I think, as you said, the things that are going to drive glucose up are stress um, and then exercise to some extent, which works in a similar pathway to a degree in that when you exercise quite hard, you can get adrenaline released. Uh, well, that's part of what gets released and that will help mobilize glucose. Uh, and then there's food, as you said, exogenous carbohydrates. So if you eat them, your glucose will go up. And it's kind of hard to delineate exactly what's causing what sometimes during training or racing because you might be cycling hard, but then also I'm taking some carbohydrates. Which one is it? We don't really know. It's a little bit easier when things are all pretty constant uh, and then you just take something randomly. Uh, you know, so you're moving along at a pretty constant pace and then all of a sudden you see a, a bit of a, a rush because of say I took a full gel or I took a huge swig of carbohydrates. So that's a little bit easier to tease out, but it can be quite hard. In terms of the score and how it was developed, it was kind of developed for durations that were longer than about 60, 75 minutes uh, at a relatively constant intensity uh, that is, yeah, as I said, constant. So one of the challenges is one of the parameters we use in the score is drops. And this is a reduction in glucose by 10 milligrams per deciliter over five minutes or that rate over a longer period of time, at least a reduction of 10. And so that can happen pretty easily as a result of the change in intensity. So that's not really that helpful in some regards. For instance, a grand final, when you stop and wait for your mates, yeah, it's, you're going to get a drop in glucose because it's appropriate. Your body doesn't need it, so it stops outputting it. Uh, you know, the last little bit gets used. There's not a lot more output. And, and then you start moving the challenges, and you'll probably report this as well. When you start moving again, you actually feel like garbage. And it's because you sort of need to warm back up a little bit, right? So there's that aspect of it. But in terms of evaluating your fueling strategy, you just kind of got to write that off uh, and you know, at that point, yeah, it's not a big deal. We have a metric in development called glucose effectiveness, which tries to eliminate some of this, which is looking at, and I know you did some of the testing for this, Bobby, and I know it wasn't particularly pleasant from what I've heard. Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing some of that myself with, uh, some running, but you know, you know, it looks at 
did your glucose respond as we thought it might or it, if or it, as it needed to? And that's probably a bit better than uh, what we're doing at the moment with drops, which is really as a result of, uh, you know, changes in intensity can do it. But if it's not a change in intensity, then that drop is pretty meaningful. So if you eat, you know, something, and I know you mentioned some of your fueling you had would, you know, rush you a little bit and then you'd have a bit of a drop afterwards. And I mentioned this recently on the pod with a product I was trying and I had a bit of a rush uh, and then I ended up, going hypo and that that drop is very significant i felt it it was terrible and you know that's for me i've since i bought quite a bit of this product and of course i'm not going to throw it out so now i'm petering my dose a little bit so i no longer use a single piece of the product i sort of break it up a bit more and split my dosing and it, it seems to work a little bit better in that regard so that's good learning as well right that's that drop is meaningful uh, and that's where it's helpful so unless you're doing a constant effort unless it's a sort of probably above zone two, depending on how low you set your GPZ, the score may not be as relevant or rather a hundred may not be the best you could hope for, right? If you've got a bunch of drops, you know, at something like a Grand Fondo, 60, 70 might be about as good as you could get, um, depending on on a few factors of how high you set your GPZ, how broad it is, uh, what you're doing intensity-wise, what you're doing fueling-wise. Just to let you know, I was 35. That was my default score. Yeah, not great. Not great. Yeah, well, but, um, that's, uh, that's a good day for Xylan. You know, the on and off intensity, <laughs> um, using some some products that I, I hadn't really tested before, um, th that was that was a lot of the reason for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think on those longer rides, the way to really think about it is probably, did I go low? Like, did I have lows? Because that's really saying like, yeah, you've probably run out of a bit of, a bit of fuel or you've, you've had something that's, that's set you low. Uh, and what was my slope? And if your slope is pretty flat, um, and if you didn't have any lows, you probably nailed it, uh, because you're going to have these periods where you're out of your GPZ, you're going to have these periods where you have drops. So I'd probably look at those two parameters as better feedback on how you went. Yeah, I think that's very important for people to realize there's a difference when you have a drop due to lower intensity compared to when you have a drop due to basically going hypo. And the sensations that go along with that, I think that's got to be your your perimeter. You know, if you're feeling okay and you see that number start to go down, I'm not saying trust that and stay down there. But like, you know, if your sensations are good, look at that in retrospect and say, okay, maybe the intensity came down. Maybe I didn't need that sort. But I would definitely suggest trying to to correct that, especially before the next intense climb or or segment comes up yeah i think some of what people feel is often a relative change so it's less about the level you're at but more about how you got there and where you've come from so you might feel okay at 100 but if you were at 200 and then all of a sudden you have a huge drop from 200 to 100 you actually might feel quite bad because there's a relative change rather than yeah 100 is too low for me uh, so i think there's a component of that as well that comes into it at times that's the beauty of visibility though um, you know, before you would have to just go on, on feel <clears throat> and try to correct that. Now to have, you know, scientific backup to actually figure out, you know, what was that? What was the cause of that? You know, I love that about, you know, having visibility. Um, should we get into Berlin Marathon or is this, this something sure. that you are still sure. scared of, David? <laughs> I'm not scared of that. I love Berlin. You I'll go rocked back. it. Yeah. Happy days. Uh, what do you want to know? What do you want to talk about? So should we talk about the days leading into into the marathon? I know you were chasing a PB there. What was the PB you wanted to chase? Was it 248? 
Yeah, I'd run 248 and change. Um, I can't remember what that change was. I know you've given me heaps about this before. I don't know what that change was, but it was really... It was nine seconds, I think, or something like that. 12 or 14. Uh, but anyway, so I'd run 248 and, and change. I was hoping to go 247 or so. That was the hope. Um, or you can break 248. And that was where I sort of thought I might be able to do it. And uh, yeah, it went much better than that. Much, much better. So... Um, yeah, I guess the, the days leading in. Uh, yeah, so I got to meet my parents in Berlin, which was really cool. I haven't seen them since pre-pandemic. So they met me in Berlin, which was really fun. Uh, cool to spend some time with them. Was very aware of needing to keep them occupied so I didn't have to do a lot of walking with them. So I set them up with some stuff to do because I'd been to Berlin before and loved it. So I set them up. Uh, you know, I'd organized some restaurants to eat ahead of time. So I knew where I was going to eat. Uh, often with majors as well, it's hard to get bookings. So I'd booked ahead of time. I knew where we were going, knew what we were doing. It was all pretty close to, to our hotels. Uh, we were st staying in different hotels. Uh, that's another pro tip. And then, um, yeah, it was all, I did pretty little, watched some sport, did standard carbohydrate loading thing, went and bought a bunch of bunch of carbs, brought a bunch to drink. Uh, it looked very similar to my Boston uh, uh, build up there in terms of carb loading. Uh, took a similar approach. Went Had to go out and get my bib, which was a bit, it's a bit full on. There was a lot of, it was super like lots of queues, lots of queuing and stuff, which was, I mean, it was cool to see. It's out at, um, I can't remember the name eludes me now. It's going to kill me, but it's the old airfield, uh, that they used, uh, prior to, it's where a lot of the running happens. It's now an active space. Um, but I think it was built by Hitler. So it was a really cool, it's a really cool airfield. So they had the expo out there, which was really nice. Uh, and then yeah, got to race day, uh, was pretty relaxed about it. Woke up a bit early, ate my food as I always do. Um, four hours before, got to started walking up, met my parents, was talking to some few people, and then you know got changed, went in, and uh, there was a lot of walking from where I had to enter and leave my gear with my parents to the actual start line. It was quite a lot of. It was quite hard to navigate. It was kind of like, oh, you have to go there. You're in that thing, and so I sort of had to navigate it and, and got there and waited and the. It was really cool to see, you know, the elites warming up because I was a block back from them. So it was really cool to see the elites warm up and, and see the wheelchairs go off and see all that. And then the gun went and, yeah, I went much too hard because you always do. And I knew that was going to come and I was just trying to relax a little bit. And, uh, and yeah, that was – and then we were off. I've always wondered uh, when you guys are – you know, I've watched many a marathon on, on TV and now they got the cool drone shots and – like you said, they, they start people in little corrals and whatnot. Um, when you say that the pros were warming up, what, what sort of warm-up do they do? And were you able to do any sort of warm-up or were you just stuck in, in that corral and had to go cold? Uh, it kind of depends who you are. So there's different levels. So there's the pros and the like true elites. And then they have usually many races have a sub-elites where you have to qualify and that might get you bottles. Uh, so you get to put out your bottles on the course as well. And it may also like personal nutrition and you may also get some warm up and VIP sort of access. I obviously didn't have that because I'm, I'm not even sub elite. I'm like sub, sub, sub elite. So uh, I actually could have done a little bit of a warm up if I wanted to, uh, but then you still have to make it to where you're starting and you still have to stand around for a bit because you're in a, like you've got a big start pen. So for people like me where your start pen's quite big and it makes a bit of a difference where you are in that uh, for comfort. So I, I sort of, decided to prioritize getting in there and then you sort of stand there on the spot maybe do some like squats or whatever and try and warm up a bit the the nerves are getting there the adrenaline's there so it's a little bit easier the pros get a bit of a space so they get to 
do some run-throughs and some strides and that sort of stuff. And they come in from a different area. So they usually get some warm-up space. At Berlin, they've got a really good sub-elite program and they give the same for the sub-elites. So it's really cool. I think it's under 230. Uh, maybe it's a little bit uh, something similar and, and an equivalent for women. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see those guys get to do that. It's why so many people run fast there who are in that um, sub-elite range. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of it. I At Rotterdam, I got to do a little bit by virtue of where I was and just some logistics. But for Boston, actually, Boston's quite good because you have to walk to the start line and they set you off in different uh, waves. So you get to sort of walk and do some warm-ups. So Boston was actually quite good for that. But uh, generally, you stand around and get a bit cool. It's not such a big deal for the marathon if you don't start like an idiot like I did uh, because you generally have this long period of pretty – I mean, the marathon's not too terrible until – 30 kilometers, 20 miles, maybe a little bit further. So it's kind of, you should be relaxed for that and running pretty easy for that. You shouldn't feel too hard. So you don't have to really go for it. You're not needing to sprint off the line uh, for most people anyway. Well, I'm surprised that you say that you started um, fast because we have your splits up here. And that was the most amazing thing of, of seeing your data was how consistent your splits were, especially, well, gosh, I mean, all the way through. But, you know, being able to keep that sort of pace and consistent pace, the longer you go in, obviously it's getting harder. Um, what allowed you or what did you focus on to keep that pace so consistent? And then as we see in that last 5K, you just got faster and faster and faster. Um, what was, what was your, your planning strategy there? Yeah. Uh, so the first kilometer, if you look at those, if, if I showed you the first five kilometers, it probably wouldn't look as good as the five kilometer split does. Um, one of them was a, a pretty quick, uh, the first kilometer, and then you sort of settle in a little bit. Um, you generally try and find a pack and switch off and relax and just cruise along with them. And you all sort of pace off each other. I usually have an idea of what pace I want to run. This was quite a bit quicker uh, than what I would plan to run, but I predominantly you need to be for any event but definitely marathons you need to be running off feel to an extent you need to have dialed that in and understand what it should feel like and that was what was kind of doing my head in because i was like this is the intensity i should be running in terms of feel and my heart rate is good but i'm running too quickly and my watch splits were going off i'm like this is too quick this is too quick this is too quick but i thought listen really check your heart rate if that's not too high and you feel good then this isn't too quick just go with it this might be the day you might be having a day uh so just sit with it and um what I tried to do, because I was at a funny pace uh, for my goal time, 247, it's a funny pace because you usually get these clumps, right? If you're running four-minute kilometers, there'll be a clump. If you're running 330s, there's a clump. If you're running for, you know, uh, a one, you know, whatever, some time barrier, four hours or 330 or 345, there's usually these clumps of people and they go in a group and it's quite easy. But because I was running at a funny goal time, I knew there wouldn't be a clump of people. So I was kind of, I just had to find some people who were running a similar pace to me uh, and, so as I was running along by about five or six Ks, I had been, I had an eye on a couple of people who were running pretty well as it started to thin out a bit. Cause there's people who start way too quickly and who come back to the fields. There's people who start pretty slowly, who've started further back and who run through you a little bit. So it takes probably five to eight kilometers to really settle. Um, and then as I was about, I think it was probably eight, 10 Ks. I had been running around this guy for a while. I was like, this guy's pacing really well. He's really consistent. He looks really onto it. So I started to talk to him. He's actually from Berlin, a guy called Christoph. Uh, and Christoph and I just started talking because you can, right? It's, it's marathon intensity. It's pretty straightforward and easy. And so you should be clicking them off pretty consistently. And we just started and I said, listen, what do you, what's your goal time? And his goal time was similar to mine. And I said, 
And I said, we're a bit quicker than that. And he said, yeah, we're much too quick. And I said, well, listen, if you feel good, these are the things to go off. Like, let, let's go together. And so we sort of ran together for a lot of it. And there were a few people who sat with us um, for quite a while. One of them had like a, had a cadence thing going and it was beeping consistently. Like, and it was killing me, just killing me. Uh-huh. I was just killing me. And it was behind me just beeping the whole time. And this guy was just sitting on our shoulders, not talking to us. Like, and, and it was just beeping. And I'm like, this is killing me here. Anyway, eventually he dropped off, thankfully. Um, and then I was running with Christoph, just talking to him. He's from Berlin. He was telling me about the town. He had all the friends on course. So it was really cool because we had this huge cheer when we went past his friends. And then he had a mate that was jumping in at 25K to pace him who'd had a, who had a bib and decided not to start and jumped in at 25K to run with us and run us through the end, which was really cool. Uh, so we had this fresh guy to come in. They had some nutrition for Christoph and stuff. And so we were running, talking to him. It was really cool because he gets on. He got in at 25K. He's like, Kip Troy, you went through half in, in 59. And I was like, wow. And we started talking about that. And we're going along. And I said, hey, guys, if, if he runs this, we might be able to hear it from the finish line because we're going to be you know, 45 minutes away. And the way Berlin is, you're actually running back towards the finish line. So I was like, oh, we might be able to hear if he actually breaks this. We may hear it. Of course we didn't. Uh, and of course, you know, whatever. We were never going to. But we were running and, and it was really helpful to have them because they also knew the course. There was a hill late that I didn't really account for. I'd sort of looked at the course profile. I was like, how bad is this hill? Uh, and it wasn't terrible to be fair, but it's, it was helpful knowing it was coming and it was going downhill from there. And, uh, we just clicked along, we're clicking these kilometers off. Um, you know, some of them a little bit quicker, some of them a little bit slower. So over five Ks, it looks like I'm metronomic, but the reality is each K is a little bit different. Uh, and then we got to, we sort of come over a bridge at about 36, 37 Ks. And I was like, Oh, this doesn't feel great. Here we go. And I, I'd run part of the course and the days leading in as a bit of a shakeout. And I always like to run a part of the course as much as possible. This, I got to do like two kilometers of it. Uh, but it was in this patch in, in around 38, 37, 38 kilometers. And so I got to the patch I knew and I was like, okay, I know where I am. This is good. Um, and I, I always write some themes to the marathon. And so I I'd use that based on the course. Um, you know, where I wanted to do what and, and how I wanted to envisage it. And from about 36 to 40 Ks, I knew that, and I said this to the guys I was running with, I was like, we're going to have them start coming back to us. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, they're going to come. And like, what are you talking about? I'm like, everybody who's messed up their pacing, they're going to be coming back to us. Use that as fuel. As we pick people up, use that as fuel. And it was really helpful. We started to see that come back from about 35 Ks. And so I'm at about 37, 38 Ks. And I was like, okay, we're here. We go past this big cheering area. And I was like, okay, cool. And we get to, there's this long straight that you go along from about 38 Ks. You sort of turn on this long straight and then you run this long straight and you turn a bunch of bends and then go through the Brandenburg gate and finish. There's a sort of zigzag to get in um, with like six turns in it. So you turn off this and then there's six more turns and then you run through the Brandenburg gate and finish. And we're at 39 kilometers. And I said, guys, like we've got 12 minutes left. Let's go. Like, let's just, we've got 12 minutes. Let, let's just go. And um, Christoph said to me, man, I, like I'm redlining. I cannot go. And I said, I, like, I'm really sorry. And he's like, no, no, go, go, go. You're having a day, go. And I just took off and I started going. And it's a funny part of the marathon. I've said this to many people, but the last handful of kilometers of a marathon is like the zombie apocalypse. You've got all the zombies who've messed up their pacing, who are all coming back to you, just death marching. And then all of the people who are running away from the zombies who've like paced it properly. And I was one of those uh, for the first time perhaps you're usually somewhere in between, but um, it was interesting. You know, you hear this a lot that women pace better than men do. And everybody I was running, running with that was coming through the field. Well, all women, women and me uh, going through the field and all these like poor dudes have like mispaced it. And um, I just had in my mind, like these six bends and then you've got to sprint the sprint through the gates and go for it. And I was looking at my watch and I'm like, I might be on for 245 here. This is crazy. I've got to go. Like this has got to happen. So I just kept picking up. There's the next person to chase 
there's another person to chase down. Then I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, we've only got a couple of bends and then there's the gate. And then there's like, listen, you've got to break 246 here. Like you've got it. You're never going to have another chance to do this. Like on such a good day to so go, just go. And I absolutely rinsed myself. I ran like a, I think it was, I was running sort of, what was that? My pace was to finish off was very quick for me. Uh, right around threshold. Yeah. Yeah. So right around threshold uh, to finish, uh, you know, the last couple of hundred meters, I was running like 330 pace, which is, about 10k pace for me so that's uh, above threshold so it was uh it was good it was really really fun and then all of a sudden i got surprised by fitz and, and phil standing there i was like oh there they are people in the company i didn't even know they were going to be there so that was cool and uh and got to talk to freddie ovet afterwards which was fun as well can i ask you quick this is a silly question and maybe i should know this you know running marathons myself your your pace is incredibly consistent for the first 20ks you you ran at 356 pace how do you stay on the same pace like that what i'm trying to say is i know you're more or less to a pace i want to try and sit at but let's say i want to run for me at like five minutes a k but 1k might come in at 457 and the next one might come in at 508 you know, how do you stay so consistent throughout this? I mean, you've been between 356 to 358, that three second margin. That's that's the biggest gap you had until you went all out at the finish. How do you how do you run physically run consistently? Okay. Well, it's not so consistent. It's so it, it is exactly what you say. It's three. It's, it's, you know, if I'm running 356s, it's, you know, it's 353 and then it's and then it's, you know, three and then it's. 360 or so, you know, it's, it's four minutes or something like that. So you have this variance of a couple of seconds per kilometer. When you average it out over five kilometers, it looks very consistent. And to be honest, it probably is. But um, there's a lot of little variance between it because there's a corner or there's whatever. So, so do you there keep is an, a lot of variance. Do you keep there. an eye on your average pace then? Uh, I don't use instantaneous average paces or anything like that. I tend to, I'm trying to get away from looking at each kilometer, but I do, I still have that. <laughs> yeah, I still have that sort of, uh, habit of looking at each kilometer. And interestingly, when you look at what you see in a marathon is people start to look at their watch progressively more and more as they go along to check heart rates and things like this. What you'll notice if next time you're doing this and you're running with a group, do this. When you look at your watch, it almost, it's like yawning. Someone else will look at their watch and you can almost talk it out. I started like having this mental game of this, seeing this during the run. I was like, this is hilarious. Christoph would look at his watch and I'd look at my watch. And then a little while later, I'd look at my watch and he'd look at his watch. And it was like, and not, not just when they ping for the kilometer split, which was even funnier. So the smart people say that you should be running firstly not to kilometer splits because I, you know, my race, if you look at it on Strava, it's like 43 and a bit kilometer, 42.7 kilometers. It's never going to be the same, partially because you run different, partially because GPS is different. And, you know, when we talk to Robbie uh, in an upcoming podcast, he'll talk about how marathons are actually measured. So, and, and that will then give you some insight as well. Um, but so you should probably look at 5K splits and just make sure you're on time. So understand and know your 5K splits. So I had my 5K splits written on my hand, which very swiftly became useless because I was under. So so they were all automatically thrown out. So I was like, okay, well, these aren't helpful anymore. But you, you tend to look, I would suggest using 5, 10, 15, 20K splits or whatever. I had a time in mind I wanted to go through half in. Uh, and then I wanted to, to negatively split that. So I still managed a negative split, which was great. Was 20 seconds or so, which is pretty much perfect. I was really happy. So, uh, yeah, it's just a good day. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about your glucose score. I know that our listeners can't, can't actually see what, what we see based on your, your, your data, but you had 
a glucose score of 82, three drops, and you, you signaled one from slowing down and settling, one from the third gel, and one late in the yep. race. But I get a lot of questions about immediately after a workout or after an event, there seems to be what we call that 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 rush, even if you didn't eat. And I can imagine like after a, a marathon, you kind of have to walk out of there, you get your medal, you get your little blanket, you have to get out of there until you get to your your um, your support team that may have some food. But what is causing that that rush after so many of these events? I get that question a lot. It's a really good question. So um, you can see my data there of the like post-workout. You can see it goes quite high. I think there's a couple of things happening. For me, I have a gel quite late in the race, um, and I my gels are too expensive to spit them out, so I'm not spitting that one out. I'll swallow it, thank you. Uh, so it's probably a little bit of that actually hitting the buds, like hitting the circulation and, and being distributed. There's also a component. Um, for me, I was running above threshold, so then as a result, you produce a bunch of lactate, and that can be shuttled and turned back into glucose often. So there's a component of that. Uh, and then there's also this component of you've had a huge output for ages and you stop. So you go from a bunch of delivery of glucose and use to no use anymore. And then all of a sudden you see an increase as a result of that in there as well is actually an alcohol-free beer that I had with Christoph, which was lovely. And the thing with alcohol-free beer is it's full of carbohydrates and not a lot else. So it'll give you a little bit uh, of an increase there. And then I think I had some, I had some tea, which was lovely because post-marathon, I want nothing sweet. They had like this warm tea there, which was just perfect. Um, so I had some tea and I think I skipped the banana or whatever they gave you. Uh, they often give you like a banana or something. And I was like, no, nah, I can't have anything more sweet. So I had some tea and then an alcohol-free beer and then went for a walk. And then I didn't eat anything for hours. Um, and you can actually see as I was walking uh, post, you can see I, I ended up like with a glucose at sort of low 60s uh, as I was walking away from the marathon. Uh, my father's a doctor and was like, is that chewy? And I said, no, no, it's fine. It's very normal. Uh, he's like, are you okay? I said, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not lightheaded. And they, they're surprised that, you know, similar to you two is that you can finish a marathon and feel okay. They're surprised that I'm not needing a wheelchair or something like that, especially after running a PB like that. And I was just happily walking along merrily doing my thing. So, uh, so yeah, it was cool. Cool to see that. And, and cool to see that. I was, I had the energy band. I was looking at it and I'm like, look at my glucose dropping. It was, uh, it was quite funny. One of those party tricks. Alrighty, Zylan. What about you, mate? Let's talk about Kona. Well, you two were both in Kona, right? I wasn't there. So I got a little bit of social media update uh, from a few people at the company, from a few other things. Like what happened? You got to, you got to Kona super early, Zylan, and had zero internet. Um, so what, tell, me, tell me what happened. So you, so you flew over. It took you five days to get there or something like that because you flew from I don't know where. Yeah, I flew from South Africa. Um, <clears throat> I think... Because of the time zones, we left yeah, something like a Monday morning in real time in South Africa and then arrived in Kona in South African terms on Wednesday afternoon or something like that, four flights. So that was yeah, really tough. Man. And the time zone was literally 12-hour difference, time zone difference. The worst possible situation. Could, could not be worse. You travel for two days and you have like a, the worst possible time zone change. That is horrid. Yeah, but went uh, early on purpose because I was concerned about the heat. Um, obviously, it is winter in South Africa at the moment, what we call winter, what the Northern Hemisphere calls mild temperatures, but uh, <laughs> was concerned about the, the humidity and the heat, so I wanted to go for some early acclimatization. Um, I think 10 days before, I was training in Spain, yeah. 
um, in yeah. the heat over there. And that was a wake-up call for me as to how hot Kona was going to be. So, yeah, I wanted to get there as soon as possible. But, yeah. You were being put to the sword by Ash, weren't you? Ashley Mulman Passier, previous guest, she was putting you to the sword. I was staying with her in Girona. And, yeah, her and her husband, who is also a former pro triathlete, was, uh, oh, my goodness. It was just what I needed to get me in shape. But it was not a fun process <laughs> when you go train. When you're like me and you're a very, very average athlete, you go train with an actual elite athlete and they push you. Um, but, as I say, it was exactly what I needed. Because I only actually got the call up to Kona with six weeks to go. Um, I was training for a half Ironman, a 70.3, so I wasn't completely unfit. It wasn't like a couch to marathon situation. But training for 70.3 and training for full, it's just completely different. Um, so with six weeks to go, I really had to had to ramp up the training. So that Girona training camp at Rocacorba Cycling was yeah absolutely amazing. And just to dial in on some stuff here because I think there's some value here because we talked a little bit in this period you basically so you found out no wetsuit swim we talked a little bit already about this was a concern for you in terms of both your history of you know swimming and and developing but also you've never done a no wetsuit swim right so now you go from I'm training for a half and it's gonna be a wetsuit swim and we're good you know nice little day out to have to fly across the world swim without a wetsuit I'm not comfortable swimming in general uh you know, how do you even approach that? Like, what did you go through mentally? Talk us through that. So five years ago, I learned to swim properly. Before that, I could swim, but I never got technique, you know, and training. And when I was a kid, my father sort of put a life jacket on me, chucked me in the pool and said, learn to swim. And that was it, you know. And then the rest of the time, you, you're messing around in the ocean and in the pool and lifeguards or friends keep an eye on you. You don't really know what you're doing. You've seen what other people are doing. So I, five years ago when I wanted to start doing triathlon properly, I enlist, I got a coach and he taught me um, swimming techniques. So I am by no means a natural swimmer. It is by far the worst discipline for me. I come out of the water like bottom 30% consistently, bottom 30, 20%. Um, so in the last four or five years of me doing triathlons, my biggest fear has been getting to a race and finding out it is a no wetsuit swim. It is something that has literally been in the back of my head for the longest time. And I always said, I do not think I will start. Um, but I've got another friend who, come, who comes from a similar background to me and he experienced it three years ago in Durban. He did a race over there in Durban, the ocean, the um, Indian Ocean. It's very warm. And they, on, on the morning, they made a call. It was a no wetsuit swim. And he freaked out and he was ready to walk back to his hotel. And the guy next to him said to him, no, trust me, if you train for it, if you can swim, you can't do it. You've never done it before. It's just your mind that's limiting me, limiting you. So uh, that's always stuck with me, you know, and I knew it was my, I knew I have the fitness for it. I've done a couple of Ironmans. I've done almost eight seventy point threes now. So I've got the fitness for it. It was just, yeah, having to overcome the and mind. For the uninitiated, the wetsuit helps with buoyancy. It helps you float, right? Yeah. So that it's actually, there is a psychological component to it, but some of the psychology is physiology as well, which is you float better. It's easier to swim a little bit. Um, it's a bit of a security blanket in some ways. Yeah, you don't even have to tread water in a wetsuit. You just float. You do nothing and you won't sink. Um, so yeah, when I was training at Rocacorba, they have uh, the lake in Banyoles. Um, I hadn't done open water swimming for a, a couple of months just because of the nature of my work and traveling. And But yeah, I tried to get in the lake immediately. There was actually a swim squad from South Africa staying with them ironically at the same time. So I went down with them to the lake. And I find after not doing open water swims for a while, it always 
my mind always freaks out at some point um, during it, you know. So I, I got in there. First 100 meters, I was swimming with them. First 200 meters was okay. And then I started panicking all of a sudden because I was swimming without a wetsuit. And I literally you know, took a left sharp turn to get to the shore as quickly as possible to stand. And I mean, literally a week later, I was swimming three and a half kilometers and I only stopped two or three times. So it shows I had the fitness for it. But those days leading into that, it was just the mind that you have to overcome. But the mind is powerful. You can't sort of just shove it aside you know so that was also the the strategy with getting to Kona early was to get in the ocean every single day and overcome that so I panicked again a bunch of times in the water in Kona in training but had these mind uh, training um, you know things that I to, to overcome when it came to race day I was completely confident and completely calm in the swim it was unbelievable man We'll get to that in a second. Talk to us a bit more about, so you arrive, you're doing all this training, you're trying to get on into time zone. You got in on Wednesday, I think you said? Yeah. So Wednesday and race day was Saturday for you. Is that correct? Uh, the following Saturday. So it got to be okay, there for so about had, 10 days training. Okay. And when did it get crazy on the island? All right. So you got there Wednesday. When did it start getting really crazy? Yeah, we sort of got there. Our accommodation was on Ali Drive, so on the, the, the run course. Um, and there were athletes all day long going along, going along. And you're like, okay, I've arrived. I've never seen so many triathletes in my life before training all day long. I've never seen so many ripped, tanned people with so many six and eight packs running past. So you, I was intimidated immediately, just these ripped athletes. Um, so that sort of became the norm, you know, we'd go out training on the Queen K highway and there'd be athletes and, you know, that'd be, you thought, okay, I've arrived now. But really, really like three, four days before the women's race, women's race was on the Thursday, three or four days before that, it really ramped up where you could see everything was set up. They, they shut down the road where the, where the red carpet is, where the finish line, the infrastructure started going up, um, more and more athletes and families, the race hotel started getting busier. And that's when yeah, it started dawning on me that I was in Kona for the World Championships, man. So that's that's Monday. When did the ripped athlete that put you to shame, Bobby, arrive? When did you arrive, Bobby? <laughs> I think I arrived um, the next the next Tuesday or Wednesday. Okay. Um, not as long of a travel for me but it was still quite long and i was the the first one to get to the airbnb house that that we rented and i walked in and you know we're kind of up out of the way i just took a taxi directly from the airport and it was actually cold and rainy up at our elevation oh, wow. and i'm thinking like wow we're in kona i thought it was going to be much 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 warmer so started sharking around we had no food um the lady was showing me around the house and there was i said is there any place close by where i could you know run to walk to order from and she kind of just like no but there are two hot pockets in the refrigerator in the freezer and i don't think i've had a hot pocket in 25 <laughs> years but i was starving and so i pulled out that hot pocket and as soon as I'm eating it, I was just like, this is the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. And, you know, with, with my energy band on there confirming it, I was like, okay, I'm not going to eat this second one. And then Xylon walked in and it was like, 
oh yeah, what are you doing here? You know, like it, it was just a real weird realization that, you know, okay, he's here to race. I'm here to work. Um, he's already kind of in that zone of thinking about this. And in the morning, I'm going to do that. And then, you know, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm really tired. I'm just going to go to bed. And I woke up in the morning and he was already up and had made coffee and was just, you could just tell his, his mind was going a, a million miles a second there. But just being, being there with him, um, the first couple days, I just tried to stay out of his way. Um, I knew that he was nervous. Um, I remember one morning waking up and going, Hey, it's a beautiful day. And he just went into something about, okay, yeah, on, on T1, I'm going to stay on the right side. But when I come out of T2, I'm going to be on the left side. I didn't even know what T1 and T2 meant. And I'm like, oh man, I just need to listen and walk away because he is in a totally different mental mindset here. Um, but it was, it was, it was just really interesting seeing the way that, you know, we had some obligations to do, you know, we were meeting athletes, we were meeting coaches, we were, um, there for work and, and, and Zylon was there to rest and to taper and to prepare. And I, I think, you know, the, the rooms we were basically staying side by side and they weren't en suite rooms. So we had to share a bathroom. And the biggest fear for me was in the middle of the night, tiptoeing to the bathroom with the light on my camera as the only light on, like sitting down to take a pee so I didn't make any extra noise because I didn't want to wake up our star athlete. You know, I was just what scared. What has my life become? This is a that. guy who's finished on the podium in the Tour de France. He's an Olympic medalist. I'm an amateur trying to not finish last in Kona World Champs. And he's giving this. Can I just say something? So I've been working with Bobby for over a year now. And on the calls, you come across as such a serious guy, like, you know, just like you know, like very serious and don't joke. And even now on the podcast, you're coming across as that a a little bit as well. When I met you in person, it was like a completely different person. He is the most fun, naughty, mischievous person. It is, man, it was really, really great spending time in person. I I was so glad I got to to stay in the same house as you and share that bathroom together, man. And I got a question for you on that, Bobby. So if that's his impression of you when you got there, you know, your impression of Zylan is, yeah, he's, he's, you know, pretty happy, but he's not very funny. And, uh, you know, he's, he is what he is. What, what did you think when he, when you arrived and met him in person? Well, like I said, he was super focused. Um, and one of the, I think it was the second day we went to like the presentation dinner and we, we meet him cause you know, we had our car, he and his wife had on, uh, had their car and we kind of, there's all of a sudden it's real because I, I saw people going back and forth and I saw people on their bikes and I saw people running and in the hotel, getting their credentials and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden we walked in and this entire parking lot was converted to like an outdoor buffet, sort of like sit down and they had a big stage wow. and it was the the presentation. And right then and there, I realized Oh my gosh, I'm at the Ironman World Championships. I was wondering where all the hubbub was, but when all those people were in one place and we get to our table first and we're sitting with uh, our friends from the feed and Zylon and his wife walks in and he's got the coolest pressed Hawaiian shirt 
And I'm like, man, he is really in the vibe now. I mean, we're in our Absolutely. Super Sapiens t-shirts and baseball hats, and he walks in just looking the part, you know? Um, so honestly, he's always got a smile on his face. He's always got a positive attitude. And outside a little bit of that nervousness pre, pre-race pre jitters, um, that was the only the only difference. And his, immediately after the race, he was just back to himself like kind of smiling and i'm like damn he just finished the iron man in you know what 12 hours and 30 what was your time 12 40 yeah i think so yeah and how many know, minutes he's... and how many seconds island come on we, we do this we count these these 12, matter Twelve forty-one, but we round it up you know <laughs> so yeah it was it was it was very enjoyable and you know getting the whole team together um you know christina uh fitz allen you know phil uh, we, we just made a good team and, and made a good impression, not only there to support Zylon, but, but also to support our athletes and coaches and, um, not to go too far off on a tangent, but it was so inspiring to see how many people were interested in super sapiens. And yes, we had our fair share of athletes there, you know, uh, Gustav and Christian and, you know, the list goes on and on. But then there was some what we called uh, super sapiens in the wild. Like all of a sudden you'd roll by somebody that you didn't know who had the super sapien sensor and and patch on. And it was a community. It was a tribe. And everywhere you went, people saw this, you know, on the back of our arm and started asking questions. Oh, I've heard about that. You know, getting first and third in the men's um, definitely didn't hurt the name recognition or brand awareness. But uh, after the event, I went for a ride with our Super Sapien cycling kit, and I felt like a rock star. Everyone was like yelling to me, hey, Super Sapien, Super Sapien. So it was just really great um, not only to meet and spend time with our team, but to support Zylon, and then especially just to see the excitement about our platform at the world's biggest triathlon. Now, Bobby, I've got a question for you. You arrive, you've got a long history of cycling, you love bikes. You've seen all this. What was the thoughts? You're sitting on the highway. What's the story? What are these bikes like? What are you thinking as they roll past uh, of all these different, you know, because they're different bikes now. I don't know a lot about cycling, but I know they're not the same. Oh, well, let's just say I was an absolute fish out of water. Um, I had no tri bars. I had no disc. I had no camel um, back thing that they have integrated into their bike frame. Uh, No aero helmet. No, like, singlet where you know, just bulging muscles are coming out the side. And I did ride that, um, that highway where, where people were, uh, going up and down and we'd stop at a stoplight and people would just roll by with these weapons as a bike. I mean, it was a weapon. I mean, aerodynamic weapon. And they'd kind of look at me with no, no aero bars, no nothing like two water bottle cages. And they just kind of gave me this look and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know I'm a, I'm a roadie. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not here for the, I'm not, I, I, yeah, know, yeah. I, I wanted to put like a little sticker on my helmet said not racing, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, it was impressive. And one of the most impressive things, uh, I'll, I'll admit it. It was my first ever triathlon that I went to at that scale. My father got into triathlons in 1985. He was turning 40, I guess, you know, kind of midlife crisis sort of thing. And he started getting super fit and doing these triathlons. And back then, the Ironman wasn't a full length 
live streaming uh, emission, right? It was like maybe an hour on Wide World of Sports. And we didn't watch much TV when I was growing up, but when the Tour de France came on, Perry Roubaix came on, or the Iron Man came on, we were allowed to watch TV. And, you know, guys like old school guys like Mark Allen, Dave Scott, um, Scott Tinley, I remember all these names because my dad was such a fan of them. And then there we are, like in the kind of VIP corral around the pier where you can see all the bikes and you can see where, where they're going to be swimming. And, you know, now that I know what T1 and T2 means, you know, it was looking at T1 and T2. <laughs> not, the and I was just, not the Terminator movies. No, transition one and transition two. Um, it was like, man, I wish my dad was here because he would super appreciate this. But yeah. every day looking at those bikes lined up, all I could think of was how many millions of dollars are sitting on this pier right now. Oh yeah. They were the bikes that obviously I don't get to see very often because they're um, not UCI legal uh, time trial bikes. The, you know, the triathlon bike uh, has a different, you know, geometry and different regulations and whatnot. But um, it was, it, it blew me away how, dedicated these people were not only to their training and to their fitness but then their equipment and it was it was an honor to be that close to those people that you know were either first group middle of the pack or end of the pack they all had that desire to cross the finish line and have the voice of the iron man i forget his name right now he retired this year mike riley call I'm sorry, what's his name? Mike Riley. Mike Riley. Um, when he would say that person's name and then his famous, famous catchphrase, you are an Iron Man, it, it just sent shivers up your spine. Like the first couple times he said it, I was just like, yeah, whatever. You know? But then when I saw the emotion that these people showed, regardless of where they finished, having just accomplished you know, an amazing bucket list sort of event. And then to have him call them out by name. And then I don't know how many thousands of time he said it, but it just got more and more strong, more and more meaningful. You are an Iron Man. So much to the fact that by the end, I was like, Bobby Julik, you are an Iron Man. Like started to at least creep into my consciousness <laughs> heard, a little bit, but I'm, first, I'm very, 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 very first. far away from that. Can we get a very, very on, far away from that? Yeah, he said it on tape. It's happening. I, at the beginning of the week, I would have said you're crazy. At the end of the week, eh, maybe. So oh, no go. 100% commitment, but we have intel was, that you bought new running shoes this week. Is that correct? Well, um, as you guys know. Uh, I started to try to train for the New York City Marathon because I, I think that's maybe the first step. I need to train for a marathon first. Just and to be clear, started to train is a little bit of an understatement. You smoked a 10K, man. Like, faster than Zylan's ever run a 10K, you smoked one on your first attempt. Why do I have to catch stray bullets while I'm sitting here? Well, not my, I mean, I built up. I was using, you know, progress. You know, I was walking a couple K, then I was jogging a couple K and then I was running and then I got into it only to realize that the so-called running shoes that I bought, uh, were not running shoes at all. And I <laughs> kept getting these little niggles and these little injuries, but you mentioned something at the beginning, um, Zylon, the, the super shoes, like that was absolutely mind blowing. 
when you had your training shoes and then your race shoes and you showed us them and I put them in my hands and I was like, okay, now this is a shoe. This is so far away from the running shoe that I thought I was running with. Tell, tell us a little bit about those super shoes because I had never seen anything like that close up before. Well, David would be more better informed to actually to speak about the shoe. He he's buying shoes every second and third day. But it was the the Nike Alpha Fly, um, and in the training shoe is the Nike Next Percent that I use. The you, you use a Tempo Next Percent for training, right? So Tempo it's Next pretty percent, close yeah. to yeah. It's pretty similar. Um, yeah. So basically, what happened a handful of years ago, uh, Bobby, they started making these. Um, Carbon plates have actually been around for a long time in shoes. Adidas put one in a shoe ages ago. It didn't really work so well because of the foams they were using. They've now got these next generation foams and each brand has a different version. They're called something different, but fundamentally they're all pretty similar. And these foams in combination with, you know, a lot of the foam in combination with uh, plates or similar carbon pieces of carbon to give it some stiffness and some structure, uh, give you a geometry in a mix, so it gives you a geometry with a plate that helps and then some softness. So it's helping improve efficiency, basically running efficiency and reducing all sorts of stuff. So the oxygen cost of running, you know, is less. The amount is variable um, depending on the shoe and depending on the person. Uh, for instance, I know Christian is keeping is running in a specific pair of shoes from ASICS, I think an older model because he's found that the efficiency gains for him are better than the, the newest model for them. Um and obviously, Gustav's shoes are the, were the talk of the town because they were a new pair he's got from on that were significantly bigger. So there's a limit because of the shoe technology and the stack height. So that's the like the thickness of the sole, effectively. The stack height is, you know, more stack height allows more foam. More foam gives better rebound. That's fundamentally this new foam. These new foams are about more energy return. And World Athletics had to come in and regulate this a little bit. So they said, listen, you can't go more than four centimeters high and you can't have more than one plate in the shoe to try and limit some of the sort of craziness that was coming. And that's the regulations for IAAF events. But technically I can run in whatever I want because I'm a hacker because uh, I am not. I don't need to be under IAAF rules and they don't check my shoes. Uh, so technically I can run in whatever I want. But also triathlon doesn't fall under the IAAF. Triathlon can do what it wants and triathletes can do what it wants. And so uh, the IAAF actually said to triathlon, don't bring any shoe rules in because we're not sure about them yet, uh, which is an interesting plot twist. But so everyone thought triathlon was under the same rules and Gustav's in a pair of, you know, very personalized, very big uh, ons and and killed it and smoked it. So uh, all power to him. It's cool. Um, I Look, I don't think that's why he won. He's an absolute unbelievable runner. Uh, it may be why he felt a little bit better than he would have otherwise. It may be why he ran 236 and not 236 and a half. Uh, maybe 237, but yeah, he, he's a good runner anyway. And everybody's using these super shoes, just a different type, right? So you're talking about flavors of the same thing. There's nobody in that field, literally probably three people at Kona in the whole thing who weren't wearing some variety of super shoe because they're just, they feel much better. You, you, you run faster in them. You feel cool. There's a Michael Jordan effect, right? When I put on a race shoe, I feel like I can perform better. Like that's a thing. I can tell you as someone who has these things, when you put them on, you're like, well, let's go. So, yeah, um, you know, there's a bunch of different brands are doing them. They're all doing a variation on the theme. And, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool technology. It's, it's, you know, it's like bike technology or whatever. Triathlon's a good, good place to adopt it. Triathlon's not averse to change. Zylan, let's hear about this race, mate. So 
Worried about the water? You get in the water? Well, let's talk about the morning of the race. What happens? What time did you start? What happens in the morning of the race for you? When did you eat? Let's go through it. So <clears throat> the night before the race, these guys did their, their best to uh, keep me up all night before <laughs> night, man. Uh, no, I, I mean, you never sleep the night before a race. So I, I'm always never. in for, yeah, I'm always in for three, four hours sleep anyway. Um, struggled, yeah. struggled to fall asleep. Um, woke up, set an alarm for 3 a.m. because my prime time is three to four hours. So I like to get a good meal in, but... Had to really, really force the food down at 3 a.m. Not fun eating oh, yeah. eating at 3 a.m. It's horrible. Yeah, I had to yeah, shove it down. Um, started sipping on a precision hydration electrolyte tab, the 1,500 um, electrolyte tabs that they have. And it was recommended to finish it sort of 45 minutes before swimming um, and then taking one of their caffeine gels 10 minutes before starting. So... It was a little stressful in that <clears throat> I walked into the, to get into T1, no one else could come with you. You have to do, go alone. But, you know, I had my, 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 my nutrition that I was going to put on my bike with me. I still had my day clothing to check in that I was going to put on after the race. Um, but I also had the clothing that I was wearing and the shoes that I was wearing that I wanted to give to, to my wife once I changed into, into my swimsuit. Um, but got to the start and it was sort of, oh, you you can't go in with the, with this extra bag and oh, you can't go in, your wife can't go in. Once you go in, you can't come out again. So it was all stressful and confusing and didn't know what was going on. So not a great way to start the day, but sort of um, spoke to one of the other volunteers and she was like, no, I'll just take that bag and put it in this bag and you'll be fine and you can go out again. But by the time I got to the other side, they said, no, you can go out again. Um, but yeah, I wasn't sort of comfortable to go out for too long. I just wanted to get into, into the wave and, and start visualizing the race and, and getting comfortable because I was in the 35 to 39 age group, which is the age group of death, as I call it. It's guys who could still be Hang professionals. How did you... How'd you sneak into that age group? <laughs> I know. I should have I should have raised some Thursday with the twenty five to twenty nine year olds, man. Uh, um Yeah, and we started right behind the professionals. So that was gonna be stressful to me in that being a slow swimmer. I think the start waves were I can't remember if it was five minutes or ten minutes apart, but I knew that faster waves from behind would come. And they literally swam over me. 20, 30 guys literally swimming over me. But I was surprised at how calm I was. It, it helped that the water is so beautiful in Kona. You could see right to the bottom. You could see this beautiful tropical fish underneath you. It helped to keep me calm instead of like having that in murky water. But yeah, completely I would calm. not be okay with that, man. Someone swimming over the top of me, I would not be okay. Like, don't even touch my feet. We can't nope. be friends. Like, do not get near me. Let's swim around me or something. I, I'm sorry, I'm slow. The, like, I'll take the long road. The, the swim in Kona is a perfect triangle. So you sort of go out on the left-hand side of the triangle first and you turn right, 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 and then straight back to the finish. Um, and someone gave me advice saying, okay, you don't want to lose any... You're a slow swimmer, so you don't want to swim extra distance. So just follow the the boys straight out and that's what i did and then the first group came and they were following the the buoy line and they went everyone right thinks it doesn't over me mate it doesn't matter if you are faster or slow everyone doesn't want to swim extra distance yeah and then i <laughs> i decided to go left 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 a bit i decided if i swam an extra hundred meters it's better than getting swum over but then another oh, group yeah. came right in the line where i was and i was like i'm not far left enough oh. and, 
But actually, yeah, I actually loved, loved, loved this swim. Loved achieving something. Loved being calm at it and loved making a breakthrough. I made a breakthrough in my stroke in the middle of the race of all places. And that was fantastic. Um, onto the bike. And how did you, no, no, how did your swim go? So like in context of your previous races, in terms of timing and these sort of things, I know you can't really compa- compare it, but how was it? It's very hard to compare because I've done two Ironmans before and the swim was cancelled in the one and halved in the other one. So my friends have been on me for the last couple of years that I've never actually done an official Ironman. So then this was well, you haven't. this was fun to yeah. drop the bomb so to, them to, to do to do to do my first full Ironman in the world championships, man. That showed them. Um man, that's unreal the swim was unbelievable i was happy with my stroke i figured something out because i was sort of swimming with the last six seven guys in our wave i could see their blue caps and something just clicked you know with my head and getting straight and, and tucking my chin in and i saw that i was getting away from them when i did that and i was like oh this feels fast and i did that for the last 500 meters and got away from them and i was like oh i can't believe i just had a, a breakthrough in my swim and in the middle of world championships incredible and to be clear you were worried about being cut off from your swim i know talking to you ahead of time you're like yeah they may not let me compete like they won't let me continue if i'm too slow yeah when that was the concern the cutoff in kona is very generous luckily it's two hours 20 but when i first got the entry and you know knew that kona was a nowhere to swim that i was stressed because because i haven't done a full swim in an ironman before too and i was going to swim without a wetsuit i had no i thought maybe i'd come in at two hours or so um, but training in the ocean every single day in Kona, when I got there, I sort of got my time, predicted that I would finish in the 135. Um, and I think I came in at late 134, so it was like bang on the money. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, spot on. Yeah, my, my, my watch is set to beep every 500 meters with the time. And the water's so clear that when I, you know, had a stroke underneath the water and beeped, I could see what the time was. And I could see I was like bang on 11, 12 minutes every single 500 meters and could figure out that I was on for 135 then. So that also encouraged me to stay energized, stay focused, that I was on to a good thing. For sure. Um, And then through through Terminator 1 (laughs) and... Through to Terminator One, I knew the bike was going to be a struggle. Um, I was just undertrained. Um, but you, you're an ex-cyclist, mate. Like this should be your strong leg. This is where you Pac-Man everybody. I'm not an ex-cyclist. I'm a current cyclist. <laughs> Still a present cyclist. You're an Iron Man. No, you, can't, you don't get to be all the things. I, I visited maybe I visited eight countries this year. I'm about to go to my ninth country. I don't think I've spent more than two weeks at home. And unfortunately, every time I travel, it's without a bike. Um, so my running's actually become my strength because of that consistency the last few years because of the nature of my work. Um, and also, this is Kona World Championships where I'm racing guys who qualified for it. They are Uber bike. Everyone's an Uber biker. As Bobby said earlier, they rock up with absolute weapons. People know how to ride a bike. So I had people passing me on the bike all day long um i didn't want to overcook it i sort of knew i had a very small margin of error because i was so under trained for the bike so followed the power didn't hit the numbers that i wanted to i was sort of five six watts less than i wanted to um but i could also see a lot of guys passing me they were out of their comfort zone and they were spending budget they didn't have that they were going to get early kona is famous for the marathon how hard the marathon is and how people walk the last 10 15 k's from the marathon from the energy lab 
um and i got to experience that which we can get to um but unfortunately i suffer from lower back pain so after the turnaround at harvey i was like going up to harvey which is this long sort of 20k climb just gradual climb at at about three percent my back just started getting worse and worse and worse and that's also just because i haven't done long hours on the well, I haven't done long hours on the TT bike in that position. And I haven't done my strength and conditioning exercises that the physio has given me. I haven't done them consistently the last few weeks. Because a lot of it needs, I'm going to make excuses now. A lot of it needs ex- the exercise ball and 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 rollers. And I can't travel with those things. So, um, yeah, I literally got off the bike after 100Ks and had to do some soul searching. My back was so sore. So I got off to do some of the physios exercises, see if I could activate my glutes more to help my back. And was sort of Bobby and the whole Super Sapiens crew, my wife were at the finish line. And, you know, I was doing this for them and I didn't want to disappoint them. And I, I didn't finish a, a, a 70.3 last year due to this back pain. I just couldn't run. I couldn't even walk, let alone run. And it was the same pain sensation. And I thought, oh no, this is what I'm in for. And I had a good cry on the bike like I I got back on the bike and I was trying to sort of pedal without any pain and the pain was just worse and worse and I literally cried I felt so so sorry for myself at a pity party I'm like yeah in the world championships I'm gonna disappoint everyone and then I wiped away my tears and I'm like okay you're in this moment now you've overcome as a cancer survivor you've overcome way more in your life you know what can you do in this moment and I started focusing on a pedaling action where the pain was sort of was less um and i could find a position that was sort of comfortable and it made me actually more efficient i was going faster because i was focused on keeping my head absolutely still my upper body absolutely still my back absolutely still and just having the legs do the work and it made me more efficient going back so you said to me on this just here you said yeah so i started focusing on keeping my chin down on the swim and then i started swimming well and then I had this back pain and now then I started cycling and I focused on keeping my body straight. So the takeaway here for me is firstly, you probably need to work on your technique a little bit. The second thing is process focus goals are so important, right? If you focus on the process, the, the outcome will sort of sort itself out. And, and to some extent, you can't focus on that, right? You have to focus on what it's going to take to get there. In an Ironman, it's getting through the swim, then through Terminator 1, then you get on the bike and all the while is nutrition. It's about, did I forget anything in Terminator 1 that I shouldn't have? It's get everything you need on the bike, take your nutrition, do your hydration. Then through Terminator 2, same thing. Let's get all the gear I need for the run. So it's it's all process focused. I'm sure, Bobby, you probably feel the same way about the tour. Uh, process is everything. You know, you have to, you know, plan your work and work your plan and be confident in having that experience just like one of the things that you mentioned that is impressive was, you know, that you reserved your dinner table, um, your eating locations before Like that's, that's, (laughs) that's, that's genius. Right. But I have to just interject a little bit of newbieism again. Um, so we, we had great access. The people at Ironman really set us up with, um, premier VIP sort of, uh, status, but really there wasn't a bad seat in the house. Um, but I just happened to be there at that little line coming out of T1, um, where they have to be walking or running with their bicycle. Then there's honestly a line line. and you cannot get on your bike, even one foot in front of that line. And I'm sitting there waiting for 
Zylen. I totally forgot that we've been pronouncing your name this wrong this whole time because I learned it right about here because your wife was like, Zylen. I'm like, <laughs> turned around. I'm like, isn't his name Zylon? So Zylen, pardon me. I, uh, for over a year, I've called you Zylon, and I know David does as well. But um, you, you know, everyone's coming there. I felt a ball of stress just as a spectator. Like, why is the why is there such a rush here? Like, people had totally different techniques. Some people were running with their cycling shoes on already. Some people had their cycling shoe in the pedal and then would somehow in, I don't know, 50 meters before you started to go up that hill, get their feet in their shoe. They Some had rubber bands holding the pedal to the rear axle so that I guess the entry point would be a little bit more stable. I'm just sitting there like, wait a second, you guys got a 112 mile bike ride. Where's the fire here? Just take your time. But then there was everybody coming up behind him and pushing him out of the way and just all this stress. And when you rolled up, you rolled up like right in front of me. So I got this great video of you and, and you had more of the relaxed attitude compared to a lot of these, you know, very, very, I got to get going sort of people. But right then and there, I realized that the intensity and the adrenaline that you must have coming out of that long of a swim, hoping that you didn't forget anything in T1, getting on the bike, and then, man, you've got most of the Ironman still ahead of you. But the craziest thing that I saw in, in T1 was this, this gentleman comes out. He's one of the guys that has his uh, shoes in the pedal. He takes off very efficiently because there was people like taking their time. There was people doing almost like a cycle cross mount. And he, he takes off really quick. He gets his one foot in right away. His shoe is not in the other pedal. <laughs> so so oh. he has no shoe. Can you imagine like what was going <laughs> through his head? So he kind of spins around, almost gets hit by like three people, um, starts running backwards through T1 to try to find his shoe. People are freaking out. No, you can't do this. He had to run all the way to his bike um, bike spot. And there his shoe was like on the ground. So he must have knocked it off when he was taking it out of the stand or something like that. I was just like, I, I don't know if I can do this as a spectator, let alone an athlete. <laughs> because talk about worst case scenarios, that bad dream that could happen. Oh, it won't ever happen. Can you imagine that five minutes or so that when he's running back through T1 with all the other athletes oh, coming at him, looking worst. for a needle in the haystack and just happening to happening to happen to find it? Imagine Man, you you, you right? triathletes are a different breed. He's running sure. back and he's thinking, I hope it's at my where I left my bike because it, it could have been anywhere that it knocked, got knocked off and someone's kicked it out the way, taken it away or something. You've lost your shoe forever, not just for today, like. Man, so, yeah. And so Zylan, you you mastered that, and you had a smile on your face, and you gave me a little wave. I appreciated that. But um, you know, being there for the end of uh, coming into T two, we were sitting there for a while watching all the different people come in, and man, it was the walking wounded already. I mean, people with salt stains on their kits, like you know, they started black and they ended white. And, um, you know, couldn't get off very efficiently. And then we saw you coming in and you were, you just seemed so relaxed. And I said, you know what? It's going to be all okay now. And then you go into T2 and then a few minutes later you come out, uh, come out on the run 
and uh, I yell your name and you had kind of like taken the inside loop and I yelled your name and kind of stuck my hand out. You actually made an effort to sidestep and slap me a high five. And I was just like, he's going to be fine because if he heard me and he thought I'm going to run two extra meters to go and slap Bobby high five right then and there, I was just like, this, this is going to be great. And, um, Yes, let's let's hear about your your run now. Your your bike exploits seem like a, a major mental breakthrough as well. Um, but um, I'm sorry, David. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, I think there's something to take away for here, whether it's trail running or whether it's Ironman or something like this. It's all about you measure twice, cut once. Especially when you're coming through something like a transition, is take the extra thirty seconds. Even if you're at the front, you're better off. You see this with penalties, right, in triathlon where they have to put everything back in the box. Just take that 30 seconds, go back and do it rather than, you know, just throw it from a bit further away. Just be a little bit more sure you have everything. You know, there's always the rush, but you can always make up that time by not making a mistake. Because if you make a mistake, you're in trouble, right? You, you drop a gel or you forget some nutrition or you whatever, right? So just be that little bit more planned. Do a bit of a check. I mean, look, the women's winner, Chelsea Sadara, famously walked through the water station so she could take on water properly. That's a great example of this is I need to make sure of this and I'm willing to sacrifice those seconds. I mean, Bobby, you mentioned that I was so anxious before the race. This is literally why. It's because I'm visualizing everything, going through that process over and over and over because there's so much to remember. You're remembering your nutrition. You're remembering... Am I going to do my, put my shoes on or off? What socks am I going to wear? Am I going to put baby powder in my socks before? Am I going to do it for the run or for the bike? You, there is so much to remember. It's just it's it's like this operational logistical nightmare. Um, and my strategy sort of is to when once I'm in the water, focus on the water, focus on the race, be in that race, and then the last hundred meters, start thinking about T1, visualize where where my bike is, are my shoes in my bike, what am I going to do, what am, what do I need to do, did I put some nutrition in my helmet that I need to take out and put in my back pocket? It's days leading into the race. It is a logistical nightmare, and there's so much to to go through and. Because something is going to go wrong. It's not if, it's when. So you want the automatization of everything else that you figured out to be there so that you could figure out, so that you could work on the problem that has gone wrong and, and, and you don't have to figure out all the other basics that you might have forgotten. Um, and then, yeah, going to the marathon, as I said earlier, the run has become my strength and you know, my superpower is, is pacing myself correctly. Um, and that's just because I don't like pain. So I would much rather go much easier on the bike than over on the bike so that I could enjoy the run. I mean, it's a marathon. It's going to get painful at some stage anyway. So you want to get there with, you know, with as many bullets in, you know, in your in your weaponry as possible. Um, so the first t 10K of the run is on Ali Drive. Spectators, the vibes there. I mean, I went and high-fived you guys because I was there to take in the vibe and, vibe and experiences. I don't know if I'm going to do this ever again in my life, racing Kona. So I really wanted to soak everything up, you know. Um, started, like, was going to decide, decided that I was going to run to feel because um, heart rate in, in, in humidity like Kona, isn't always you know the best indicator of how you're doing so sort of went to feel i've got quite good intuition and good good feel so was going for a, a three to four out of ten you know rate of perceived exertion um so just got into my my rhythm on ali drive um the week before we moved to the super sapiens house that i was in kona earlier we stayed in ali drive and i ran up and down it so i knew every incline every downhill i knew the road back to front and that really helped them. Um, 
And again, had guys come running past me and I was like, mate, what are you doing? I'm going to see you in 10 minutes, in 15 minutes, and you're going to be walking. Like you are go- you're taking in the excitement of the race. You, you're going against your plan. You're going against what your body's capable of. And that happened so much. And so I was really, really proud of my run. And then the thing that makes Kona so hard that everyone spoke about that I got to experience was after 10Ks or so an Ali drive where all the spectators are, they take you back out on the Queen K um, and there are hardly any spectators out there because the road's closed. It's part of the bike course. So um, one half of the road's open to get to the highway, but your yeah, spectators are, it's not easy for them to get there. So you literally, you're in the zombie apocalypse. It's just you and your fellow athletes who are either in good or terrible shape. It's really, really hard. That's so brutal. And you're running away, right? Because it's an out and back. Is that right? You are running away. And I had two friends who I know, I knew one would finish like three hours ahead of me. One would be like two hours ahead of me. And I'd seen where they were when I came in on the bike. They were on the run already. Um, so as I was going out towards the energy land to the turning point, I had not seen them come back yet. And it is just one long road of up and down and up and down. And the longer I was running, the more time passing that I had not seen them, the more I realized what trouble I was in for and how long this marathon is. I was like, I'm not sure this is 42 kilometers. Like, they're just not coming. And when they came, they came flying past at a good pace. They weren't having a bad, bad day. They hit their objectives. They were on a good day. And I could see they were in good shape. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I do not want to know what the last 10Ks of this race is going to be like. Um... So I just, I was conservative, 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 running to feel. And I think after the swim, I think I was, I think I was 2,200 out of about 2,300 people in the swim, my position for the swim. After the bike, I'd made up another 100 positions. So I was 2,100. After the marathon at the end of the day, I was 1,700. So I'd made up over 400 positions on the run. Because so many people wow. coming out of the energy lab were just walking. And you could tell they were elite, really good athletes who just, the day just did not go according to plan for, for whatever reason. Yeah, we, I mean, we talked about that with Andy, right? And, and that's exactly, if you go close enough to the fire and you get burned, like, it, it's very difficult to come back from that. You got to walk it, you got to do those things. So, um, yeah, you're better off pacing it that little bit better, being a little bit more conservative. Um, and then coming home a bit stronger. I had a, I had early in the week, I rode with someone who had done, this was going to be his 10th cone or something. And he was giving me advice on the bike. And the one thing he said to me was get little like Ziploc bags that, 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 that zip up for the, for the run, cut some holes in the bottom of it. And every aid station, you get to fill it up with ice because the run gets really, really hot. And man, I could send that guy, I don't know, a million dollars or something right now with the equivalent in, in hugs. Um, it's I, I str- what did you what did you do with them where did you put them so i struggle with gut issues often on the run i'm trying to nail my fueling i'm trying to figure out you know how much to not over under fuel on the bike and what and what what does my body prefer does it prefer liquids what, what form does it prefer the the carbs in and the last two ironmans i've had gut issues on the run and as the gut issues sort of wanted to come up i i, I filled that ice bag and i put it on my belly and it just took the nausea away immediately and that's what I did at every single aid station. I had two, two Ziploc bags. I'd put one on my belly and one under my cap um, for the heat. And it just took the nausea. It was like a magic trick. 
And every time too, I, I would run, I'd get too excited and run a little too fast. The nausea would come back and I'd you know, fill up ice again, put it there and it would it would disappear. It was amazing. It was literally like a magic heard it, trick. Heard it here first. Man. Yeah, you guys are dropping a bunch of nuggets today. I like it. I yeah. like it a lot. But the run was something that was quite special for, for someone like myself that had never experienced the Ironman before because it was the time where you had time to look in the people's eyes and you could see them coming up at you at different parts of the course. You could see them passing you. And that was the thing that was going through my head. I mean, there were so many things, you know, pacing, hydration, fueling. And obviously, there's a wide range of body types that do cycling races, that do triathlons. And I was, it just, I kept thinking, don't judge a book by its cover, because I was seeing larger individuals pacing, seemed to be well hydrated because they didn't have salt deposits all over them, you know, taking the time at the rest stops and, and just kind of, you know, getting their pace and nailing their 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 pace. And then you would see super fit and and mostly guys, super fit that would have to start walking and then like this one gentleman, I think it was after 10k when you kind of looped up and then went back on the 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 big highway there. He starts walking and you see his disappointment. <laughs> and we're right near that a little aid station. And all of a sudden, he starts unzipping his his race suit, his singlet, and he starts taking it down. And right as he gets to the aid station, he just turns on to the sidewalk. And you just felt for him. You know, everyone's trying, come on, you can keep doing it. But man, the the limits that, that you guys push yourselves to um, is is amazing. But like, you could have a Ferrari, but if you only have a quarter tank of gas in that car you're not going to make it to your destination. So, you know, being there with super sapiens and being so fo focused on the fueling, um, that's what led me to start thinking about this because I've talked to you about this before, David. I feel that I have the motor to do things like this. I don't yet quite have the chassis, especially with the run part. But I'm like, wait a second. If I can just check my ego at the door, get my pacing right, really focus on my fueling, uh, I wonder if I can do this. And so, so it wasn't only you, Zylan, but it was so many other people where on the side of the road, you know, especially when you turn on to that finishing stretch, which is like, what, about a kilometer and a half to go. And the smiles come out because they know they're there. Like as soon as we say, this is the final stretch. And then everyone kind of is elated. Um, that was a special moment. And I, I, I love that in sports when, you, you're there to witness people achieve their objective. And yes, there was crying. There was stopping on the side of the road and stretching. There was, you know, that, that gut check. There was overcoming bad stomachs. But like to watch those people come around and especially when they kind of come into the lights and up and over that little hump, that's, which that is so that's cool. a, that is, so that is cool. another thing that I don't totally agree with, right? There were people that were absolutely just humming along and then you had to go over that little hump over the finish line and i was like is that necessary do they really need to put that little stage there but yeah it was it was such an amazing experience um through and through and i just have so much respect for for everyone that even attempted it let alone finished it talk us through the rest of the runs island so you go out you've seen your mates there you know you see them coming back 
and you think, geez, it's going to be a long day. Now, what happens? You get to turn around? So my strategy was just to run from aid station to aid station. Um, I really tried to not walk between them. Um, sort of, it would be my reward. You know, the aid stations were maybe about two k's apart or so, two and a half k's apart. Get there, um, grab Coke or Red Bull or banana or oranges. That's literally what I ran the marathon on. <laughs> was Coke, Red Bull, banana, oranges. Um, yeah, I just wanted something natural, and and those. Uh, those those fruits just looked so good to me it was just yeah amazing um so past my mates was now making it making my way to the energy lab and energy lab in in iron man kona is famous you know they say you go in there you come out a different person and i was really scared of that i trained early in the week in the energy lab and it really was hot 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 in there um so again was very cognizant of my efforts going in there but was still feeling good was feeling solid i was happy zero back pain was in a rhythm um you know people were passing me i was passing them then i'd run with a few people um and once yeah the focus was to get to the turnaround at the energy lab i knew after that that's where the race started i actually spoke to matthew marquette who we've had on the podcast before and mm -hmm. was going for the overall um, um age group overall he had race on the thursday so same day as the yep. women and he said to me the race only starts at 28k after you exit the energy lab um the one thing i didn't know was you sort of run up this hill leaving the energy lab towards the highway and i thought we would just go straight onto the highway from there no, we had to turn left to go another two, three Ks back where we came from and enter the highway that way. I didn't know that before. I should have read the athlete guide more carefully. So that was uh, a little harder. Um, but then sort of once got onto the Queen K, I knew, okay, where, oh, like as I took a right turn there onto the Queen K, there was a lady and she said to me, look at that Irish flag over there. Can you see which direction it's blowing? You've got a tailwind all the way home. And those were the sweetest words I heard. It was, it just gave me a bump in energy. And I was like, oh, that is just what I needed to hear. And it encouraged me to like get in. Because with a tailwind, you can just get in a nice rhythm if you still have energy. Um, also, I was just yeah catching more. I was catching more people than people were catching me. So that was encouraging. Um I was just passing more and more people and, you know, the opposite of what I was experiencing on the bike. So started to start feeling more like a king. Um, and my dream in, in, in Ironman, I'm doing another Ironman in, in, in March next year. My dream in an Ironman is to finish in the daylight. But in Kona, I just knew it wasn't going to happen. So it just started getting more and more dark. And I was like, oh, one day I want to have the talent um and 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 uh, and and the run up in the in enough of a workout to finish in the daylight but today is not that day um and it was actually very very dark like the last 40 minutes had got very dark out on the highway and there were hardly any lights out there so i was concerned about going over my ankle like not knowing where i was stepping yeah, well. and there was this like three and they don't they don't light the course or anything like that no but they recommend if you're going to run in the dark that you wear headgear or something like like you you, you know you take a torch a light, and some yeah, people yeah. people who were still coming out towards the energy lab they all had lights on them but i saw this yeah. kid who four five-year-old kid standing there handing out glow sticks and i just grabbed a glow stick from him and put it around my neck <laughs> Um, I was waiting on like, I saw this kid and I stole his flashlight and ran home with it. 
<laughs> this kid was just standing there bewildered looking at all these tall men going past him handing out uh glow sticks and i'm usually a very re- like conservative boring person i'm not i'm not the kind of person who will be on the dance floor first so a glow stick is except for the except for the hawaiian shirt that you nicely pressed to wear to dinner the Hawaiian shirt was just, it was classy. It was a special touch, man. That was a yeah, well-planned, well-thought-out. Okay. <laughs> yes, it was. Okay. I met Christian Blumenthal for the first time wearing that Hawaiian shirt, and we got to chatting. It was cool. Um, did he sign it for you? No, but he did ask me to sign his, which I, which I did. Lucky him. Makes um, sense. <laughs> yeah, and then it was all the way, all the way home in in the dark and. As I got closer and closer to the light um, and to the city, running down Polani, that was one of the best feelings ever where you just knew you had 3Ks left, 4Ks left. You could start hearing the announces. Um, I sort of tapped the back of a few athletes to say, hey, we're almost there. Red carpet is around yeah. the corner. Let's go. And they just had nothing in them. <laughs> I just, you know, you'd either get a grunt as a reply or do not talk to me or mate enjoyed you looking good enjoyed but i do not have it um and then yeah there's just not there's there's nothing like getting on that red carpet and iron man i've experienced it a few times now and it is a special special feeling that you know it's the culmination of not just everything that you've gone through on that day but the months and months of the the process we spoke about earlier of the work that you put in and yeah when i crossed when I crossed the finish line, I don't know, I just gave this fist bump and this scream. Something just came out of me because I went through so much throughout that day to get to that moment and just wanted to enjoy it. And what the Super Sapiens team did not tell me, they surprised me. They arranged special VIP for my wife to get onto the red carpet and hand me my towel and meet me, be the first person I meet as I cross the finish line, which they don't do for everyone. So that was really, really special. Yeah. It was a nice I, surprise. I almost cried when I saw that video. Like I almost cried. Eloise and I were texting. I was like, oh, I'm going to cry here. This is insane. And I was, I was running. All I was thinking in the last 10 Ks was like, I just want to see my wife. I just want to see my wife. That's what I was thinking. I was in so much pain. And I think you just want to see someone familiar, someone you can be vulnerable with, someone you, you know, you could just fall into. And that was like such a special touch, man. That's unreal. That's so cool. I did another pro tip that I learned after the finish line. So Bobby says I was up on my feet again and, and, and ready to go, but I wasn't for about 10, 15 minutes. So they take you through to medical, just where you check everything's okay. Um, as you finish and you get your medal and all of that. And my stomach was upset. Um, I, I drank, I think I took Coke or something, you know, they asked, you want to drink something? And I just, you know, automatic response, just took something and it just upset my stomach and I just wanted to vomit. And I I went and found a a spot on the grass and I just lay there for 10, 15 minutes and I just, I was unwell. I was just not feeling good at all. And I found a doctor. The doctor said to me, hang on, I'm coming, I'm coming back now. She came back five minutes later with a cup of chicken broth and she said, drink this. And I was like, what? She said, drink it. I drank it and it was like a magic trick. I I finished the chicken broth and within minutes I was up on my feet. I felt like I could go run another 10K. It it brought me back to life. It was, I'd never experienced that before. And she said, yeah, it, this, it just restarts your stomach. It just kickstarts your stomach. And another pro tip, man, my next Ironman, I'm definitely going to have a flask waiting for me with chicken broth in it. Yeah, warm drinks, uh, hearty drinks like that help a lot for sure. 
Uh, you'll see them in, you, you see them actually given out, uh, that sort of stuff, yet uh, in a lot of ultras, uh, in ultra marathons, especially in the mountains, they'll give out a lot of broth because it's salty as well and it's it's warm and, and all those things. They did have them at so. the at the aid station at the energy lab, but I, I, I didn't want to try something. I hadn't tried on race day before. We knew where that got me on my last iron, man. But next so time... you finally learned something. Next time, I'll be taking that chicken broth for sure. That's awesome. I think we got to call it at that, man. That was, that was unreal, reliving that with you. I uh, got goosebumps. It was awesome. No, thank you to you. Thank you to you guys. And thanks, Bobby, for joining us on this. On It was actually really, really special, you know, having someone who was there and, and seeing it from your point of view because from the athlete's point of view, it's, you know, that's where you see it from. And we've actually been putting together um, a, a little video that's going to go out on the Super Sapien social channels at some point. And I've been looking at the videos that everyone's been shooting um, of me running in and coming down. And then, you know, you guys keep recording and I hear the conversation like five, six, six seconds before you stop recording. It was so interesting to see the day, a little bit of the day from your perspective. So it was really cool to see, to, yeah, to have you guys there and make the day and make the day special. So thanks for coming here and, and reliving it, man. It was awesome. It was it was a pleasure. And one one bit of um, feedback, you know, you you all just finished an Ironman, and like you said, you weren't feeling well. You needed some time. I couldn't believe that they made you go back and get your own bike, <laughs> your own T1 bag, yeah. and your own T2 bag after all that. Like, there's got to be a better way, better way. But, you know, it was full of really cool moments. But one of the, um, the cool ones that I don't know if we told you about, um, the night before the race, so Friday night, uh, Christina, Fitzallen, and myself, uh, we were together and, and Phil was, uh, Phil Sutherland was at a meeting and we had to pick him up. So we had the car, he dropped us a pin. We're following this pin. We pull into this very kind of dark parking lot. And as I'm turning right into the parking lot and going slow to, to get into the parking lot, I could see like two people like on the side of the, uh, uh, sitting on the curb. And Christina goes, um, that was Gustav and Christian. And I said, no way. Why would they be sitting in a dark parking lot the night before the race? So we realized that we went the wrong way and that we had to go out of that parking lot <clears throat> again, excuse me, to go and get Phil, who was just in the parking lot below. And we're, we're like creeping up on them, you know, like creeping. And they said, no, that's definitely them. I said, you know what? I'm getting out of the car here. And so I, I got out of the car. I approached them very slowly. And I said, I'm not a stalker. We don't have a tracker system in the super sapien sensor, but I just wanted to wish you guys all the best of luck. And Christian kind of shook my hand, kind of like, who the hell are you? And Gustav like, you know, really shook my hand. And, um, it, it was just so cool seeing the guys that went first and third sitting on a, out in the middle of a dark parking lot a few hours before they had to get up and start priming and getting ready for the Ironman that they were there just like total normal dudes um, night before a race. It, it was cool. I mean, the whole entire week was a blast. And again, uh, Zylan, thank you so much for sharing your, your pain and suffering with, with the Super Sapiens team. I'm going to end this year. We have to wrap this up because we can talk forever. David, one final thoughts. I was going to say, 
Gustav's a cycling fan, so it doesn't surprise me he knew who you were, Bobby. Uh, so that makes complete sense to me, Christian less so. But my, my biggest takeaway from this is I'm going to see Bobby Julich on a KDX bike like Christian's next year and then running running down the uh, running down the, the finish line of an Ironman. That's my takeaway from this is Bobby's doing an Ironman. Oh, my buddy Eric from Hoka has offered um, some help with p- uh, selecting some shoes for my uh, preliminary trial runs. So you never know. Very good. Very good. <laughs> we have a commitment. Not you never know. We have a commitment. We have it on tape. Bobby is doing an Iron Man. Thank you, guys. This was really, really special. We hope uh, everyone listening enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, get in touch with us, David at supersapiens.com. Also, join the Super Sapiens Discord channel. We've got lots of communication and chatter going on there. And share this with a friend. Rate the podcast. Guys, thank you so much. Bobby, David, thank you so much for your time again, man. Special, special one. Thank you. Thanks, Jens.